Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, a coach, and this is episode 110. And in this podcast, I discuss what we can do in order to achieve our ultra-endurance goals. Endurance goals as well. And while it was primarily started for my athletes, the ones I coach, most of the discussions and things we talk about are applicable to most any striving, interested, curious, ultra-endurance athlete. I've found that the topics my athletes ask about want me to discuss or explain in more depth are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in as well. I try to discuss and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level because I feel that's the first primary focus of any type of endurance or ultra-endurance event. If you have the fitness, you can overcome so much that will be thrown your way on event day or during your adventure or your expedition with regards to things that you didn't plan for or control or can control. But outstanding fitness allows you to make clear choices and still go with it. I was going to say run with it, but (laughs) in some cases we're not running. We can maintain a strong mind and the mental resilience that comes with it, as well as it's great for our overall health. I also try to deliver advice, observations, and tips for all of you, the listeners. But beyond these specifics, I believe with outstanding fitness and good health, we also reach a certain happiness and gratitude with ourselves in our daily lives. We feel connected and alive. This is what I talk about when I talk about the best athletic version of ourselves and how when we tap into it daily, when we give ourselves an hour, 90 minutes, two hours, 45 minutes a day to be the best athletic version of ourselves, I believe that bleeds into the rest of our day, the overall version of ourselves. And while the rest of the day we might not be putting forth, and it's very hard, the best version of ourselves, Having a window each day where we do portray the best of ourselves, the best one of the many components of ourselves, the athletic self, I believe we get better and better through practice and connecting to it on a daily basis so that it continues to have a greater impact on the overall version of ourselves on a daily basis. Eventually, that athletic self that commitment, that perseverance, that looking towards excellence of our athletic self will show itself in other aspects of our day, other components of ourselves, and just raise the entire level of the best overall version of ourselves. And soon there will be very little difference between the best athletic version of ourselves and the best overall version of ourselves. I believe that. I truly believe that. And that's sort of the mission of why I coach and why I do the Weekly Word podcast. And I believe so deeply in the overall fitness and health of ultra endurance because it allows us to do our best at something small every single day. And in athletics, because of the health and the mindset and all the other positive outcomes from it, It allows us to continue to bleed into the rest of our day so that hopefully most of our day is not necessarily athletic, but that we have the strong mindset, 
We apply strong principles of health and fitness and confidence and mental perseverance throughout the day. And a, a certain satisfaction and confidence that comes with our day because we're the best athletic versions of ourselves in the current moment, in who we currently are. And that bleeds into how we are as parents, how we are as friends, how we are as husbands and wives, how we are as coworkers, how we are as leaders. So that's the angle that I come from with the athletic version of ourselves. And I believe it's one of many ways that we can put forward, put forth our best foot, our best athletic version, uh, not best athletic, best overall version of ourselves. Are there other ways? Absolutely. But in this realm, in this way that we're going about it, I believe that the athletic version is another doorway into improving everything that we live within, within our days and with our families and the three-legged stool that I talk about. So that's the Weekly Word Podcast. That's basically what we're always discussing here. Simply put, it is bringing forth the best current athletic version of ourselves, how to go about that with tips and insights and training thoughts and answering questions. And that's what this week is all about. I answer a bunch of emails, no real said topic of emails, but what always comes up, and I think three of the questions alone talk once again about zone two work, and I love it. Again, zone two is not my theory. It's not something I invented. I would say the grandfather of it all is um, Dr. Maffetone, and you can find him on the web, Phil Maffetone, and he has some great stuff on his website and thoughts and approaches and position papers and a lot of, a lot of really good knowledge. But I've taken that and I've applied that to a variety of different aspects of the training. And I've sort of taken a different approach in some aspects where I want to be more specific and more um, demanding of the zone two approach. And then also a lot of the things we discuss, again, that's just my experience. And I've been in this sport and doing endurance sports for 25, 30 years. And I've been doing my swimming <laughs> at a somewhat high level for all my life. And I've been coaching for 25 years and I've been working with all kinds of different athletes for 25 years. And so all I'm doing and I'm currently doing as I'm still competing and I'm still training and I'm still looking for the next adventure constantly. I have plenty lined up for this year, but again, thinking about 2020 already is I'm in it with you. And as we're learning and as we're discussing, these are all things I am currently still doing, still observing, still applying, still testing, and still seeing what's best in the overall picture for my athletes, as well as for you, all of you listening, as well as for my own training. So, and that's sort of where we begin this week with a bunch of zone two questions. We also talk about Plantar fasciitis, it's a, it's a common um, injury that comes up for many, many athletes, PF issues. So I answer an email about that. I talk about swim skins, when to use them, and when they're necessary, and why we use them, why you definitely want to have a swim skin. And swim skins are the thin swimsuits, full body, um, uh, you will call them um, 
yeah, full body swimsuits that go over your triathlon shorts and top for races that are where wetsuits aren't legal. And I dive into that a little bit. And there too, if you have questions about the swim skins, let me know and I will respond individually to you. And I also would give you a discount code for the Roca swim skins because I really like their product, obviously. I've been with them for many, many years. And yeah, if there's any way I can help you with your event with a discount code from Roca, I'm glad to help that with that. Then um, we talk about being new to a 5K even. I coach athletes on all levels. It isn't always an ultra endurance adventure that they're on. They're not just climbing Everest. They're not just swimming across the English Channel. They're not just, you know, ski mountaineering for seven peaks, eight peaks, or whatever kind of altitude gain they're looking for. No. I also work with athletes that are looking to become ultra endurance athletes. And in many cases, that's literally coming off the couch off to their first K, 5K, and how to train towards a 10K and beyond that. Now, I don't stay there with the athlete. I'm always trying to push them and their intention to be endurance athletes becomes the first goal. And so I walk us through that and how to go about that and the question regarding that. And then finally, I talk a little bit more about IT band injuries. And one of the last emails is a pretty interesting email on how I go about having initial discussions with athletes because um, trying to figure out how to coach them individually and what all the inputs are. And this athlete is on her first 10K. She just completed that. And she seems to be a pretty strong runner. And she's looking to take that 10K time and within five months, move on to a marathon. And I go into, well, what that discussion might look like with her and how I might um, go about it. Not necessarily in the training, but the, this, the, the thought process of what it takes to think about how we would go about trying to achieve that goal in a matter of five months. So that's what this week on the podcast is all about. I've had extra time this week because I crashed on my cruiser bike <laughs> while walking my dogs. And I don't think I broke any ribs, but I sure knocked them pretty bad. So I've been out of the pool for two weeks. I've been off running for two weeks. And I just started getting back on the trainer um, gently for 45 minutes yesterday. Um, so I've been off my bike for two weeks, which has been great. Um, we're in the process of moving and moving back to our old house after some construction. Of course, <laughs> very timely since I can't lift a single box, <laughs> but um, it allowed me to help on other things, catch up on work and get this family going back into moving, school starting in a few weeks, unpacking and a lot of work ahead and the final stages of construction are always a lot of headaches and require a lot of input so yeah i injured myself and can't train probably for another two weeks properly maybe a little bit on the trainer but it's been a blessing on the other side because it's opened up a time window and a relaxed state towards working more and being available for the construction and for the family 
And a family of six moving is a lot of stuff and a lot of throwing away and a lot of garage sales and so forth. And so why do I bring this up? Well, because as we are as athletes, and I can't really be the best current athletic version of myself, it's more a question in my mind of accepting what has happened, as stupid as the injury was, <laughs> and going from there to saying, all right, how do I maximize the time that I'm currently out to prepare myself for when I'm able to train again? And many of my athletes hear this conversation, whether they're sick or have a serious injury, and they're just out for three, four weeks, or a week or 10 days, or even when they go on vacation. What is it I am currently doing, not me, but me, the athlete, I'm currently doing to not only do the best I can be today, whether that's as a parent, as a husband, or as a coworker, or as a leader, or in my job, um, in order to, again, be present, be the best version of myself today, and prepare my life and my mindset and my logistics and my infrastructure of my life for when I do train again. Can I get ahead on work? Can there be projects at home that I can work on? Can there be other things that, again, set me up so that when I do go back to training, I have, can breathe a little bit easier, literally, <laughs> and um, clear my mind a little bit more and ride or run or swim with a little more intention and clarity because other things have been cleared off my plate, have been freed up because I did the work the last four weeks in order to allow the next four weeks to sort of balance out a little bit more with training and a little bit more of an overload. So in my case, with the move and family and school starting and packing and unpacking and work, I'm trying to dive into that fully and not worry about any training. But I also am setting up a coast ride for a bunch of buddies and I from Portland to San Francisco. So seven days, uh, 780 miles um, on the first week of October. So I've put something out there in order to get myself ready for big cycling fitness in Qatar in November. And I have this intermediate step of the coast ride along the way. And so I have the other intermediate steps that I will stay connected to cycling once I can really bike again and have a focus to work intermediately towards. So I will probably not be much of a training athlete until September 1. Then I'll take September to get ready for the October coast ride. And then I'll use the October coast ride to catapult myself to Qatar. But in order to do that successfully, in my case, I'm using August to really clean up anything left with the move and school starting and work and any projects and um, deliverables and then be ready in September with good spirits, a healthy body, and a clear mindset from a stress and workload perspective to work on September and October to get fit and ready for Qatar. So that's where we are. That's where this week is. That's what 110, episode 110 will be. And yeah, let's dive right into it. 
So thank you guys for listening. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast. And with your support, you're sending in such amazing questions and good, um, a good variety so that we're, we're not always talking about the same thing. And yeah, it's pretty fun to just continue to answer your questions about ultra endurance training all across the board, how to begin, how to rest, how to recover, how many, how to set up seasons, how many races to do, how to train, how to have a mindset. It's all in there. And then continue to do that, please, 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 please. And yes, I know I owe you on a few other topics, but like I said, I have extra time right now and I am going to quickly knock out another podcast this week still. So enjoy. All right. Hi, Chris. I have another zone two question, please. On Friday, I ran 15 miles for the first time with the intention of it being all in zone two. I managed zone two for the first 10 miles, but for the last five miles, I was tired and frustrated to keep having to walk for moments, so didn't really stay in zone two. Although my average heart rate for the entire run was within my zone two range. The question is, did I invalidate the 10 miles of zone two work by then going out of Z2 or not? Is it possible to split training sessions like this so that there are parts some parts are in different zones, or do our bodies need the entire session to be in one zone only? Hope that makes sense. I'm happy for you to answer that in your next Zone 2 segment on the podcast. I guess I do have a Zone 2 segment every week on the podcast. Well, I think many of you, as longtime listeners, can answer this question for Tim, and that is, no, we do not need to spend the entire session training stimulus in zone two. Many sessions include a variety of different zones, um, speeds, adaptations, outcomes. You can combine a variety of uh, desired stimuli into one workout, especially runners, track runners, cross-country runners, overall in the running field of coaching, Many of them combine concepts within single workouts so that you do some zone two time, you do some zone three time, you do some VO2 max intervals, you do some threshold work, you do some active recovery work, zone one. So there's many ways to go about this and finding how it works best for the individual athlete is always, of course, the coaching challenge. But more specifically to this question, no. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, and that is if overall at the end of your week or if you look at it from a month perspective, your zone two volume is around 70 to 80 percent, that's plenty. That's building a ginormous base of aerobic capacity relative to the overall training hours that you're doing. So, yes, some of us have more time, 20 hours a week. Some of us have less time, 10 hours a week. But if the percentage of that time is in zone two or zone three or zone four as designated, you're still having this overall stimulus. Now, many a times um, a session will include such as strides or other type of workouts where most of it's at zone two and then you do some leg turnover and speed up and heart rate work or technique work late, which kicks you out of zone two. So it all depends on um, the stimulus, the desired outcome of that session, 
and again, how it fits into your week. Now, if every session is compromised because we don't feel like walking or get frustrated, that's a different story. But, you know, if let's say this is an hour or 10, uh, 15 miles. So let's say that's, let's say two hours and 20 minutes on average to run that long. Um, so if for an hour and 50 of that time, hour and 45 of that time, you were in zone two and 30 minutes of it, you were in zone three or zone four, that's still fine. You got the benefit, total accumulation towards your week, towards your month, towards your stimulus of, let's say, um, 75 to 80% of that workout being in zone two. So the, it clearly does work like this. And it's all about the long view and keeping in mind what the accumulation of hours in each zone are. It doesn't compromise the workout itself. Hi, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast every week since September last year and love your content. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. This June, I did my second 70.3, the first one which, of which was the same time last year. I have a young family and a stressful job, so approaching my training with the mindset you promote on your podcast and adopting many of the training principles helped me to improve my race outcome but more importantly, find balance and love the process along the way. Yeah, small caveat there. Um, keep in mind that balance is not necessarily um, everything being equal. And this is just a gentle reminder because I do come across that in conversations frequently every week. Um, we're not looking to be in perfect balance. That's very, very hard to do, if not impossible. One leg of the stool tends to always be a little bit longer or shorter, just where we are in life and different phases of life and then life getting in the way. But being able to sort of have a perspective of each leg of the stool, the personal um, leg of family, the, the career and work life leg, and then the athletic expression of yourself leg, the you leg, your health and fitness leg, your mindset leg, your soul, um, that holistic you um, leg is what I'm talking about, the third leg. So keep that in mind. The balance is often used as or envisioned as if it's in perfect harmony and balance. But sometimes harmony means one leg is shorter than the other, but work and family and your own personal space are in good harmony. They're working well together. Maybe not as ideal in the hours or the outcomes that we are looking for, but we'll take harmony of the three versus one being um, heavily weighted and feeling good, but the other two being in shambles or dragging down the other leg. So I thought I'd just remind us of that. Since my 70.3 in June this year, I've had a flare-up of PF, plantar fasciitis, and fear it's getting worse. It was creeping in from May, so I've had, the, had it for two months or so prior to this. I had a flare-up in December and January. Generally, I run three times per week, 15 to 20 miles total. Nothing excessive. My goal for next year is to take my take on my first marathon and build towards a 50K, but I'm cautious about upping my mileage, even though I want to, because I'm worried about making PF issues worse. My question is, how do you approach PF with your athletes? Do you remember backing off? Man, I'm having a hard time reading today. Do 
you recommend backing off completely or work through it? Any advice would be appreciated. Yes, plantar fasciitis is just such a debilitating, annoying, constant um, issue um, in, with our bodies. And oftentimes, I start trying to pinpoint with my athletes where it could be coming from or what could be the trigger. Um, too often, we try to react and figure out how to solve a PF or hope that it gets away. But we want to get to the root of the cause. What brought it about? What flared it up in the first place? Now, this isn't always a linear process because sometimes we just don't know what's flaring it up. But I will look at shoes, for sure shoes on many athletes. Lots of times, lower foot issues come up because of an imbalance elsewhere. And the PF is an extension of the calf and Achilles and some sort of work being done there to compensate weak hamstrings, weak glutes, weak hip flexors, and so forth. It's usually something, usually, not always, usually something that is somewhere further up or down the chain that has an effect on something like the PF Achilles, and even lower calf. I feel it myself when I have injuries, especially in my calf. It's an imbalance I'm taking care of, I'm compensating for um, with the stronger muscle and not attending to the weaker muscle. And usually in my case or many athletes' cases and surprisingly many triathletes' cases as well as ultra runners, it's weak hamstrings. So that's one thing I start looking at, shoes and muscle um, strength throughout the chain. I also look at running form. Oftentimes we get PF issues with overstriding. Remember, we've talked about how I don't necessarily believe in heel striking, midfoot striking being the cause or the issue with many runners. Um, it's more overstriding. Your foot, your heel landing on the landing point, yes, on its heel, and people say, oh, heel, heel striking, that's bad. I agree, it is bad, but usually it's not the heel strike itself that's bad. It's the fact that you're overstriding, the fact that your foot, your heel is landing in front of your knee. And you want to make sure your heel, your foot is landing under your knee as it's the front leg in your running stride. And when that foot lands in front of the knee, A, you can imagine the braking uh, motion that that creates. But also that first moment when your foot lands, think of it, it's in front of your knee. It's going against your momentum and the impact and the um, absorption of force and torque at that point is so high and it does pull on the PF and strain the Achilles and heel dramatically. Even with cushioned shoes, there's still the counterforce of your foot landing in front of your knee, working as a brake, and as your foot lands, that's a counterforce, the rubber band, the arching motion, the support of the PF and what it's designed to do is severely impacted. We land on our foot with 40 times, sometimes even more, of our body weight. In most cases and most averages, it looks to be about 40 times our body weight is being absorbed when we're landing on a running motion on our foot. Just think of that all being pinpointed towards your PF. So running form 
is a big one there. I would look to make sure or get better insight of how our foot is landing and our running form and our posture and technique. I would also look at volume, correct, on how quickly that was brought about, how we're strengthening the foot with regards to strength work, and combining all those factors together along with some rest, along with pulling back in order to allow that inflammation, the signal that the body is sending us to allow it to be heard and addressed. It sounds um, way too simple, but inflammation, a niggle, a pain, is a bod the body sending us, our brain, our being, a signal saying, please pay attention to me. Please do something. Please make a change. And if we don't, the next level of signal comes. Stress fracture, longer-term injury, sometimes in with regards to health from just a cold to a few full-on immune disease or something more um, serious. So the PF is another one of those flare-ups, another one of those triggers to say, hey, pay attention to me. Something you are doing, you, the overall you, in your running form or how we're building the volume or in these shoes or in a variety of different ways is not enough. It's not good enough and we need to address it. So it's a combination of those. A bad PF, yes, it can be debilitating for a while and um, it will require some rest sometimes. But I've also had athletes who've run with their PF through the deserts, um, multi-day stage races, 250 kilometers. And yes, they've done the volume for it and built up to it, but you know they let that happen um, and worked through it, not let that happen. They didn't let the PF mess with their outcome. So there's also a variety of um, strengthening exercises or massages you can do with the tennis ball or golf ball, as well as standing on those knobbed platforms so that you can get some strength there. There's also some single leg exercises you can do, balancing um, as in strengthening the support muscles in the foot. Um, so there's like padded um, little squares. Uh, forget the brand name, they're blue light blue and they're padded and so learning to stand on that on one foot and do some um, dips or squats single leg squats while balancing on that foot on that soft foam all that all just supports and strengthens all the support muscles and the overall landing and posture of your foot as it is in preparing for stride or getting stronger for running so there's never one answer for something like that because it is something continuous that comes up for you. It's just something you'd have to work through. I've had PF many times before in my early years of training, but then again, because the volume, because of care, because of changing things up, because of addressing it differently, it's helped. Um, and it's gone away. I've never had a PF issue probably in 12 years, 15 years. Another thing I would recommend is running barefoot once a week on grass or something like a nice field, soccer field or something like that. Again, to activate the, all the foot muscles, uh, 
without a lot of impact, nice and light, to connect with your true running form without a lot of cushioning on your feet and just to see how your stride goes. I have many athletes do their strides after a longer run and I assign maybe six to eight strides at the end. Um, do those barefoot. Take their shoes off after their long run or their medium long run, whatever that is, six, seven, eight, nine, ten miles of aerobic running and then finishing up with eight to ten to twelve strides. Um, those strides, well, they'll end up at a, you know, a soccer field or a track and on the infield, they'll do some running um, with those strides and their shoes off. And again, reconnecting with good form, light on the feet, reconnecting with the ground and the foot that those two, how they connect and how they're, they'll get cleaned up. We get tired and heavy and run heavy when we're fatigued late in a run. So cleaning it up, short bursts, and doing that also helps dramatically with running form, but also for you, in this case, um, to continue to strengthen the foot and activate those foot muscles and feel the connection of how your foot's hitting the ground, moving through your stride, and releasing from the ground. So those are all the things I would recommend for plantar fasciitis issues. Hi, Chris. First, thanks for your podcast. I discovered it in January of this year. I love the concept of Zone 2 training, of which I knew nothing previously. A little background about me for context. I never grew up as an athlete, completed a few sprint and Olympic distance triathlons about seven to nine years ago before losing my way athletically. Lived a sedentary lifestyle for the most part since then, and this made this is made worse by my professional life as a CPA, with ne which never gets me out and moving and is especially demanding in March through April each year. Definitely can understand that. Um, I've started some healthier habits since 2019, including a regular training um, of swim, bike, and run, and be eating and better eating habits leading to about 30 pounds weight loss and improved endurance and fitness. Man, I am really struggling with reading today. Um, so that's great. 30 pound weight loss, improved endurance and fitness, and uh, better eating habits. I'm going to complete an Olympic distance event in August and a half marathon in September. Antipas anticipate doing long rides and runs of about two hours each at the maximum during that training. My ultimate goal for now is an Ironman in 2020 with a 70.3 in 2019. Not much time left for that in 2019. I'm planning this long time horizon since I want to let my body absorb the fitness after all the previous inactivity as well as the lower the chance of injury. Okay? <clears throat> this leads me to my questions. One. How to manage progression in a training plan when an important period of time, March and April, has a very limited time availability? Do I schedule events later in the summer? Do I use limited time during that busy period for intense zone four or five work? Or stay mainly in zone two? I'm looking for the best way to maintain previous fitness and do not expect to be able to make any fitness gains during this period of time. All right, well, we'll go one at a time here because there's many questions in that first question and then there's a second question that's part of it. 
So how to manage progression in a training plan when an important period of time, March and April, has very limited training time available? Well, keep it in mind, keep, keep it in mind, keep in mind there's many ways to go about your personal training in order for you to be successful for the desired outcomes. One, you want to define, well, what is it you're looking to achieve? Um, are you looking to just finish an Ironman or finish a 70.3? Well, then what you're doing in March and April is completely different than if you're looking to achieve a certain result or a certain percentage of, um, in your age group or so forth or a time window. So I always like to clarify that because it's hard to just guess what you need, what you currently are doing, what you've typically been able to fit in in March and April. Now, me personally, I have an approach and an opinion, and my athletes hear about this a lot. I believe a better version of you comes forth every single day. I don't care what position you work or job you have, if you get some time to take care of your body and your mental being and your physical soul and so forth being each day. Now, that doesn't have to be a lot of time, but some time each day to spend with your physical being, your mental being, and your soul. Now, those can be split up in ways with regards to meditation for the soul and mind for, let's say, reading or learning or growth, as well as physical as getting a sweat on or moving or doing something aerobically. I'm not a big fan of blowing it out, zone four, zone five, high intensity efforts for those two months or for the windows that we can't, because usually that compromises form, technique, and the habits that we're trying to maintain with regards to the longer endurance distances. Again, training the body for something that it's not going to be doing, not really um, applicable. Again, my opinion, this is how I go about it. I don't say that the other ways don't work or can't be helpful. But again, we're talking about a two month window here. How do we maintain fitness through that? But first, I will guide you to an event that isn't directly after March and April. So I would pick something later in the summer. So you already take that stress off for sure. Scheduling um, would help. Do I use the limited time during the busy training period for zone four or five work? No, I would not. I would focus on being successful and repetitive in a busy training time, in a busy work time, even lifetime, whether that's family or work. Um, We want our energy and our focus to be on the other things that's, that's pulling from the training. So whether that's family or work. So in your case, you know, that's a busy time of year. You're doing a lot of work, whether for clients or for the firm, whatever that is. You don't want the workout to distract from your work, but you do want to insist on having a workout every day. And so in the morning, whether that's from 5.30 to 6.30, whether that's from 7 to 8, whether that's just at lunchtime from 12 to 1, or you can fit it in in the evening, which is very difficult for most working professionals. You're exhausted from a day. Your blood sugar is low. You want to get home. You want to exhale. You want to free up your mind a little bit, spend time with the family. I'm usually not a fan of the evenings then. 
Um, sometimes when life is a little bit lighter and we have buffers in there so that we can exhale at other times during the day, well, then an afternoon workout, an evening workout might make more sense. And again, there's always special cases where people just can't at any other time of day. But the excuse of I just can't get up in the morning, well, if you care about the outcome, you can care about good, getting your sleep and still having an effective morning workout. That being said, it doesn't need to be a lot. But five days in a row, seven days in a row, three weeks in a row, of zone two consistent morning training, a bike ride, a run, a swim, alternating the three, or just alternating bike and run so that you can get it in during the week and on the weekends you swim. With a lot of my busy clients, I have them do their running and occasional swimming during the week because it's very time efficient. And then they do their longer bike on the weekends. In this case, if it has to be pulled back dramatically, let's say only a two hour bike on a weekend and 45 minute runs during the week. Well, you're going to accumulate five, six, seven hours of training that way still in a week. And if all that's at zone two, it's not taxing you. You can repeat it the next day. You're not achy and sore. You stay healthy. You're still building a, a good base. You're still having the physiological outcomes of mitochondria improving mitochondria density, um, fat utilization, all those things, while still going through this busy period. I'm also a proponent of even saying 30-minute runs are better than nothing. You all know from having done 30-minute runs, or when you're 30 minutes into the run going, huh, I'm I've got a good sweat going on, it felt like a pretty decent workout already. You don't necessarily have to go banging fast or hard in order to feel a similar sensation, running light, running efficiently. Now, if those windows require you to walk because zone two has you walking, okay, we can talk about working into zone three and just going for runs and accumulating frequency in order to become more efficient in your running stride and form and gait and so forth. But I would surely commit to training through it. Not a lot, but commit to training through it. You will kick out the other end in May with a much more desirable fitness level. You will be more motivated. You will feel proud of yourself. It'll make the rest of your build towards an Ironman um, more manageable, healthy, more reasonable with regards to injury, all those things. And trust me, you run for two months straight with limited cycling, you will be a lot more efficient and fit in your running. You swim for two months straight without biking or running, you will be a lot better swimmer. So there's different ways to go about it. You might say, all right, April, I'm going to make it a running focus month. And May, I'm going to make it a cycling uh, or swimming focus month. Whatever is efficient in your schedule and you can do in the morning at home or on your way to the office and so forth. Again, all these scenarios and all my athletes and all these questions require an intricate knowledge of you, the client, you, the athlete. So I'm talking in vague generalities here, but once I start working with my athletes, well, then we start diving into the schedule and understanding where, in this case, you, Mark, could find those windows to train. Maybe it is, compared to usually no training, 
maybe four times is already a huge step forward. So, you know, it depends on what we're going to have available, how we're going to make this work. But I would surely, to answer your question, train through it and work on it. I'm looking for the best way to maintain previous fitness and do not expect to be able to make any fitness gains during this period of time. Agreed with no fitness gains. But let's say you close out February or right up until the busy period. Let's say that starts in mid-March or March 10th. Well, maybe March 1 through 10, you do a big load or you do a training camp or do your own mini version of a training camp at home or there's again so i would continue to find out from you what can we do where can we find time where can we push boundaries where can we have a huge stimulus so we want to be able to maximize the limited training time we have but then also finagle windows of saying okay that was probably the biggest week i've had in 2020 or the biggest 10 days i've had in 2020 coming into mid-march or march 10th whatever day we've designated and so then the next 10 days two weeks to pull back gradually or not really much of a recovery week but just go into less volume for five weeks versus one week of a recovery week before building back up again might work out better you know again knowing your infrastructure of training how we maximize that knowing your volume and how we can maybe squeeze out a run here or there it, so many ways but i think i answered most of that um, two how to manage the time between seasons over a long time timeline such as this there's really no time between seasons um, that's the important thing. I spoke to a prospective client this morning and, you know, they're, they're looking to come back to Ironman triathlon after a couple years off young kids and career and family totally makes sense. I'm happy that this person is coming back, has that flame, that ignition deep inside them that they want to stoke that flame again and find out again, the best current version of themselves not who they used to be but having gone through the wonderful experience of spending time or having little children or having an amazing career acceleration and now there's some time there's some flexibility to train again i'm glad that you're coming back that's the first thing health and fitness and longevity and vitality wonderful but then it's also a question of all right well now how do we when should we start coaching is more the question that he asked. And I said, well, we want to be very gradual in our buildup. You've been off for a couple of years. So we need to be very careful and take small steps and build upon build upon build. So usually what would take, you know, eight months for somebody that's done some training will probably take 12 months in order to re-engage the body, re-familiarize the body with what we're about to do. Ligaments, joints, cartilage, bone structure, all that. Again, in the newsletter, I brought up the volume increase and in how we want to do that stuff. So it meant that we took a, we're taking a longer period. We're planning on Ironman for him um, would be further away than he was actually originally intending. So, and the same thing is here, how to manage time between seasons over a long timeline such as this. 
Well, one, we don't want to let it go. We want to maybe bring it down a, a fair amount and then come back up for the season. But I know I can't keep pushing too hard without rest and recovery, but how much training needs to happen to keep from losing hard-won fitness? Well, how much training needs to happen is relative to the training you've been doing, right? If you're training 10 hours a week on average the past five months, well, then maybe we'll look at seven or six to maintain. If you've been training 20 hours, you know, that might be 12 to 13 hours. I don't know. It depends. But consistency wins every single time. Maybe doing just as frequently the workouts and training, but we take the intensity out of it. Maybe we mix it up with trail running versus any type of pavement or asphalt running, right? Or treadmill running. Maybe we go swim heavy for a week, run heavy for the following week, bike heavy for the following week in the off-season, pre-season, whatever we want to call it, in order to just mix it up mentally and from the joy of it. So again, there's so many ways to go about this, but again, I am a big proponent of not stopping for any longer periods of time, let's say two-week break, of course, um, but consistency will have a huge impact in with regards to um, not only motivation, but also reconnecting. When you come back after taking too much time off, the, the momentum killer that the first three, four weeks are when you're out of shape and you're heavy and you feel disconnected, it takes a lot of energy and fortitude to push through that. That's good for you that you're able to, but we can't keep rolling those dice and wondering, maybe I won't want to the next time. Um, the fall and early winter, how long, oh, excuse me, how long should long sessions be? Hard to know with depending on what you're getting ready for, when the 70.3 is, when the Ironman is, what volume you've done in the past, all those questions. Uh, more zone two focus for sure, but then again, depends where we are, what you've been doing, what kind of engine you have, what kind of capabilities you had, all those things. The fall and early winter are when I usually have the time to most time to train but I also see you're in Alberta, Canada. So that winter quickly <laughs> means you're in, indoors. But I don't want to achieve peak fitness months before the goal event. Why not? So to be your fittest, right? Let's say um, before your busy tax season, what's the problem with that? And many of you might be asking the same question. Well, isn't that a problem? Or what is the problem with that? Just because you've been your fittest in early March or late February before your busiest times um, starts, that's not a bad thing. That's, that means you're closer. That is in more recent history of your fitness progression than if that was six, eight, nine, ten months ago. So one, it's not a bad thing. Two, you can see how you got there, how you trained with it, how you managed it, how you absorbed it, how you... Um, how it played out with regards to the other parts of your life, work and family. So it's never a bad thing, even if you don't have an event to reach some of the best fitness you've ever been at, because that can be a launched um, quickly into something where you might want to test that fitness. In this case, I'm not talking about this person writing this email, but let's say you, Mark, are in your 
fittest point of the season or the last few years come mid-February or late fe uh, mid-February, come late February, mid-March. Now you're six weeks, you kick out on the other side. Seven weeks, you kick out on the other side from your tax season, from your busiest side of the year. You're only seven weeks removed from the fittest you've been. That's a three, four week buildup. You're back to close to being, if not fitter. But if that was in December or in November, well, then you're six, seven months, five, six months removed from your fittest. Your buildup to that is going to take oh so much longer and a lot more work and, again, investment in time. The beauty of having a good level of fitness is, and what I talk about a lot on this podcast and I live by, is staying connected to a base level of fitness so that within three, four weeks, you actually have a perspective of, huh, I've, I've trained pretty significantly, pretty good, pretty consistently for the last three, four weeks. I can see I'm only four weeks away from peak fitness or three weeks away from peak fitness. So to recap that, you want to be at a base level of fitness when, when you up it, for three, four weeks, you can quickly map out how to go another two, three, four, five weeks to get to peak level of fitness. You don't want the ramp up to be two, three months of getting back to a fitness level where you see, ah, oh, I'm about three, four weeks away from peak fitness. Because that momentum, those peaks and valleys are a lot harder to overcome than you would um, two, three, four weeks. So, all right, let me see if I answered everything here. Um, but, I don't, I, but I don't want to achieve peak fitness months before the goal event. Um, absolutely, I think you should because we'll build another mountaintop on the other side of your busy season. I utilize training peaks and could, would be curious to know how this re relates to a CTL score. Again, all this becomes a question of you personally, individually, your life, your schedule, your history, your abilities, your strengths, your limiters, all those things. It'd be hard to, to go about it any differently than an individual focused discussion around you, you N plus one. So I hope I answered a bunch of questions from a um, um, approach standpoint and a philosophy standpoint, but not really. I know I can't go into details because I don't have details, and it is a broad picture. I got this question the other day, and it was pretty good. I, I responded right away to him because I wanted to make sure he had a chance to buy what he needed to. But um, hello, Chris. I hope you're doing well. I wanted to say again how amazing your podcasts are, full of information that we, my wife and I, always put into practice. This season, I stepped up my focus and training and had a couple weeks and I just had a couple weeks ago my best race so far a long course triathlon ninth place in my age group 30 to 35 and in a couple weeks I'll be competing at Ohio 70.3 which I think was yesterday or is right about now based off of the podcast being um, August 2nd right now and uh, me getting this email on July 12th for Ohio, it's going to be a non-wetsuit swim. I have no problem at all for that. But my question is towards if I should definitely invest in a swim skin as I'd be wearing my tri-top shorts. Tri-top and short. My races have all been wetsuits, so a swim skin has never been in my mind until now. 
So I wrote him back pretty quickly that absolutely he wants a swim skin. The pockets and the way tri tops and bottoms are organized, you do not want to be swimming with that. They're basically big water um, pockets and catchers and balloons as you're swimming. Um, so they're not designed to be done, um, worn swimming. And so that becomes an easy question to answer. Um, it also allows you to have a better transition because you're not dealing with putting on or taking off stuff that is uh, um, difficult to put on. We all know when you're wet, putting on a jersey or a top or arm warmers or anything is pretty difficult. It just doesn't roll onto our skin very well and um, it wastes time. A swim skin, you have everything on underneath, you quickly zip it off, take it off, leave it in T1 and off you go basically. Um, it's faster than a wetsuit with regards to transition and changing. And there's also a little bit of a buoyancy effect in the swim skins these days. They have very strict regulations around it, but yeah, it works great. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about swim skins. And so of course I sent him the um, Roka discount code and he right away got one. Um, by the way, I was looking at the Roka Viper Pro. Maybe you have some insight if that would be the way to go or no. So yes, I told him Roka, of course, and I sent him a discount code and he got one. So I will reach out to Carl to see how he did at 70.3 this past weekend. But I wanted to bring it up on the podcast here because swim skins are a great product for um, those of you are considering how you're going to wear in a what you're going to wear in a non-wetsuit swim. I've also seen athletes wear um, tri shorts, even with no pockets, um, or even cycling shorts that are bibs in a swim portion of a non-wetsuit uh, triathlon. Now, again, nothing really um, dramatic, but if you're looking for any type of result with regards to the swim, you're swimming with a huge diaper in your shorts because of that pad, especially on cycling shorts, that's basically a big sponge you're pulling along while you're swimming. Um, slow and not very hydrodynamic. Uh, then throw in that similarly with tri shorts, smaller pad, sure, but still. Um, also meant to absorb moisture, not wick or be efficient in the water. So all swim skin all day. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. All right. Hello, Chris. I've listened to your podcast before and also heard you on the Rich Roll podcast. I was wondering if you have any advice for someone who is a novice runner. I don't run regularly, only when my CrossFit works out to force me to. Haha. <laughs> I would love to get a point to a point where I like running, but right now running a 5K is really not in my wheelhouse, and I find it rather exhausting and punishing more than anything. Do you have any suggestions or recommendations for routines or workout plans for someone who would like to get to the point of being comfortable with a 5K? Well, um, yes, of course. I mean, I do I have training plans for that? No, but... Let's go backward here from a mindset and a sort of a joy of training perspective. If you want to run a 5K, you need to, and you know you need to, find a way to get in running workouts in order to run a 5K. You need to get do it frequently enough or set up a system that works for you 
so that you get the consistency of running up so that it becomes less exhausting and punishing. As I was talking about in the earlier um, question and um, email, is that if we don't do something for a longer period of time and try to return to it, or in your case, having never done it, running is extremely exhausting and it leaves you achy and heavy and unmotivated afterwards or the day or two afterwards because it's a motion that just breaks us down if we don't frequently do it, if we don't give our sign to us, our bodies, ourselves time to build up the efficiency and the volume so that it becomes more enjoyable. Many of you listening might remember or be familiar with or just recently even had a run session where you feel like you're running on air. You're just connected. It's light. The stride feels good. You feel a good turnover. You feel your upper body connected to your lower body. You're just right away running well, not necessarily in the zone. It's more a technique question. It's more of a question of how you feel. And from that perspective, right, in order to get there, you'd want to consider running frequency and consistency. So I also wouldn't look for anything that would be anything close to 5k three miles. I would think about, you know, time. This week, I'm going to do three 15 minute runs. Don't do them on pavement. Don't do them on a treadmill. Don't make them harder for yourself. Mentally treadmill staring at a machine pavement, knowing that it's going to be achier and, and more painful the next day after it. Um, maybe on trail, maybe on grass, maybe in the woods, maybe on, you know, somewhere where it's more enjoyable with friends, maybe set up two of those sessions where you run 15 minutes with people that you can talk to. Again, it's running is one of those things that you have to do it frequently to start feeling better and good about it. Cycling doesn't have that same physical breakdown. Swimming is a completely different animal that is very frustrating for a lot of people, but um, there too, it, the intimidation factor of master's groups and so forth, and the worry of drowning is a whole different story. But running is one of those we're all capable of doing it. We just have to overcome those first few um, weeks of feeling achy and exhausted and um, uncomfortable because it, and, and we think we need to run the paces. Oftentimes when we start out running for, let's say, our first 5K, I have noticed that those training for it or getting ready to just run more frequently, they run way too fast in the beginning. Start by running slow, really comfortable, even if it's just a shuffle, and then gradually work your way up to actually running the way you envision running. But there should be right away different speeds, different energy levels that you approach your runs with. Today's just a really easy one, and I'm just shuffling along. Today, I'm going to go half the time I did yesterday, but I'm going to run it fast. That's totally fine. And then I'm going to give myself a day off, do some CrossFit-specific stuff. Then the next day, maybe I'll run that easy 15 minutes again. The following day, I'll run that fast seven minutes again, and then I'll take a day off. Things like that. Try to make it easier for you to set up success. Put systems in place, whether it's with friends or locations, and avoid the things that make it more difficult, painful, unenjoyable. Treadmill or pavement 
or middle of the day hot or late in the day tired exhausted low blood sugar so all those ways to use the day use your network use the locations to build up that frequency of running and for a 5k i don't think you ever need to practice more than running 30 minutes that should be your max of course are you going to run a 30 minute 5k no probably not maybe maybe you're that talented but that being said you know you don't need to do the full distance in training so doing two miles is plenty plenty in your training because you're on the 5k day the day you want to run a 5k and you're gonna be a little bit more rested and feel excited about it and have good energy that last mile that last half mile that you haven't trained will come easily and naturally i received a really timely and outstanding email um, the other day and i bumped it to the top of the email list because it's one it's time sensitive and two i also really like the topic because it ties into how you develop a coaching relationship with a new athlete as well as what questions to look for or how this coaching can even get started i would say there's not a week that goes by where i don't talk to about three to four athletes that call me or email me and to set up a call to see what kind of coaching they could receive and you might wonder, well, what does that mean? What kind of coaching they would want to receive? Well, usually there are events where there's not literally a standard playbook for coaching, whether it's an English channel swimmer that I spoke to earlier today. Um, you know, how is that going to happen? How would the coaching relationship work? Because the person still loves his master swimming. He still has a variety of social networks with regards to swimming open water and his buddies at the Dolphin Club or South End Rowing Club here in San Francisco. And so, you know, how would I structure the strength? How would I structure the training? How would I structure it around the master's workout? What does endurance look like? All those things. And then usually the discussion develops into a discussion around, well, what is it you're looking to do? What is your priority on this? Do you have any um, inkling to understanding that when you're swimming for 20 hours, what happens after six hours versus what happens after 10 hours and fueling and hydrating? So that's sort of the inquiry. How would we go about this? Every situation of coaching is unique. And this is actually the beauty of coaching in a master's environment, number one, and in the endurance world. Right? Because it's not a controlled environment, even in triathlon, which is pretty controlled in the meantime, with knowing biking and running and swimming, everything is different based off of the individual athlete, because you're bringing three sport backgrounds or none, and trying to turn it and um, combine it and to mold it into one sport. Because as I keep saying, triathlon is not just three sport sports performed on one day in a row together it's truly trying to mold them so that they're a steady um, output steady single experience for the body to go through the swim the bike the run should be from an energy standpoint from a muscular standpoint from a um, fuel consumption standpoint should feel like one event versus a variety of uh, different events but anyway so 
endurance sports doesn't allow for this general sort of um, structure to be played in that respect. So then now, now throw in that you're masters athletes. So everybody is an individual and I'd have to understand or good coaching, I'd hope, and whatever coach you have. And most of the good coaches do this automatically. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, and I've seen it plenty. Um, well, they take the individual and understand them and see what they need and see what their strengths and limiters are, see where their growth potential is, where their blind spots are, where they need to work on things in order to have the biggest impact or not work on those and focus on strengths instead because they can be maximized for more gains, performance outputs. It goes in so many different ways that it's hard to just have an idea of what you do with the athlete until you're 8 to 10 to 12 16 weeks in. That's why I say to so many of my athletes, and many of my athletes know this, is the six-month minimum with regards to coaching, is because I need to get a feel for who you are, what you're what you are, what we're working with. And after six months, we should see significant improvements so that we can then either focus on the events or the growth, or there's no excuse to say, well, I don't know you yet. I know you after six months that you should have already seen some performance gains. That's on me. That I own that. After 12 to 14 weeks, I should see where the gains are, what you're capable of. Not permanently, not over the next five years. I can't see that. But I can see where adjustments can be made so that we can quickly start progressing, quickly getting to the point I'm better this week than I was last week. I'm better at the end of this month than I was at the end of last month. Those gains. So we have that, that everybody's an individual. Now, into that formula, which is already quite challenging, throw in family, career, life, commitments, anything else into that mix. So not only is everybody an individual and different and has different needs and adaptations and the way they apply their energy. But now scheduling, now age of family, now family commitments, now social commitments, now career path, now travel, now age, now all these factors that play into it also have to be thrown into that pot to make things even more challenging. That's why a good coaching discussion is so important. There is no such thing as one plan. And that plan needs to constantly be adapted and adjusted and molded and listened to from what the athlete needs and then applying. And whether it's sometimes you push through and say, no, this week just has to be like this or adjusting for the schedule, adjusting for the needs, adjusting for the fatigue, adjusting for the load. So throw into that then occasionally you get a question like I'm about to read you on email. Dear Chris, almost exactly a month back, I heard you on the Rich Roll podcast, training versus exercise episode. I can't tell you how much that single episode of an hour and 30 impacted me. Your note that Rich reads at the start of the episode got me hooked. Oh, that's the letter I um, I wrote. And I knew I was listening to something really special. I like it because it was practical advice. It came from experience and wisdom. It resonated with me. I thought Rich and you are such a good conversationalist. Needless to say, I was awestruck. 
I knew nothing about the ultra endurance world and I'm glad I got a taster through that episode first. At the start of this year, I decided that I wanted to run a marathon. There was no concrete reason at the time. I was meditating and something almost awoke in me and the thought of running long distance both excited and scared me. I used to run a little bit in school and play cricket. We're getting closer here. But I only sprinted and I wasn't very fast at it either. I qualified for an 800 meters one year, led the race till about three quarters of the way and then hit the wall. I couldn't even finish the race. Memories of that still haunt me. And uh, I think though, I managed to silence some of the ghosts of my past today. I ran my first 10K this morning in Mumbai and I finished it in 53 minutes at an average pace of 8.33. All right, so we're getting a good idea here of what's going on. Somebody who lives or is somewhere in near Mumbai and returning to running, she probably has a solid background, although she might not be um, feeling that anymore because, again, she's scarred. For the first half of the year, I trained basically once a week, ran close to three miles, and did cross-training and yoga on other days. But listening to your podcast the other day completely changed my outlook. You guys spoke briefly about Zone 2 training, and upon analyzing what I've been doing all this while, I realized I was training every run in Zone 3, hoping my timing would improve. But the past one month... I did as much research, Google, listened to podcasts and YouTubers as I could on heart rate training and lactate threshold training and tempo runs and easy runs and interval training, you name it, and included these different workouts into my routine, increased my mileage, ran close to 15 miles per week with about three days of running and three days of cross training. Sounds amazing. Did this for a month and did pretty much nothing for the last three days before the race today except stretch and foam roll so going into this paragraph right here that's great a healthy buildup nothing too dramatic right 15 miles over three days is per week right so that's five miles a day um for somebody who looks to be i'm assuming maybe i'm completely wrong I'm assuming pretty efficient runner because when somebody writes to me that they qualified for an 800 meters one year, I'm not sure what that qualification level is, but running 800 meters means you're a pretty good strider and an efficient runner. And my fact of seeing I ran my first 10K this morning in Mumbai, first 10K, maybe not ever, but many, many years since maybe being a child, um, and doing that right away in 8.33s, sounds to me there's some efficiency there, just not the endurance and fitness yet. Build up over time, right? Um, so, um, if you are still here, meaning reading this email, my very important question to you is this. I want to run a sub-three-hour marathon in my very first marathon, which is the Mumbai Marathon in mid-January 2020. I have five months to train do you think I will be able to run a sub three with five months of training? I know you and Rich think, I know you and Rich think it's a ridiculous idea. But if I trained and ate right and used all my energies towards this goal, do you think I could do it? I'm five foot five, one twenty eight right now. 
Now I've taken up a lot of your time already, and if you think this is a question you don't want to answer, don't even need to respond to this email. But I'd, I'd appreciate it. I mean, I didn't choose you as my mentor. YouTube decided that you are the one. So anyway, a very sweet email, very nice email. And I brought it up here, A, because I want to get back to her quickly. Two, I um, want to give it a thoughtful and longer response on the podcast because Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad to answer any questions to the best of my ability. Do I have all the answers? No. Um, but am I the best coach in the world? Absolutely not. Can I give my two cents because I'm comfortable giving my two cents? Yes. Have I been doing this for a while that I feel like I have an opinion that might add value? Yes. And here it is. And you guys all know this from listening to me on Rich too. I would never tell somebody that they're not capable of doing something. That is fundamentally against what I believe in. I believe that we are all capable of doing some incredible things, things that others that don't know us, understand us, don't have our experiences and our life narrative within us can fathom or understand or comprehend. So therefore, no, I don't think, um, I do think, no, Let's say that differently. No, I would never tell somebody that they can't, right? That's the important part here. So then the question becomes, how do you go about it? Do you think I will be able to? And that ties into the question or the way I open this part of the podcast or this question. And that is, it is impossible for me to understand um, what this person has done with her training, how she built it up, what her tolerances are, what her thresholds are, what her gait and efficiencies are so that we don't get her injured with regards to um, 25, 24 weeks of training, um, what kind of strength work she's done, what kind of terrain she lives in, what kind of time she can commit to it, what she does for other work, what her stresses are, what her sleep is, all that. So that all paints a picture of me not being qualified until we're in it, until we're doing it, until we're training. And I can start observing and absorbing the information that said athlete, this could be any athlete, feeds to me as the coach. And this could not me, Chris, but me, the coach, any coach. And that's how the coaching in so many aspects works. Now it's harder over the internet, of course, but whether it's a coach standing at the track or on a pool deck or in a velodrome or in a car watching the cyclist bike or, you know, uh, 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 riding a mountain bike alongside, you're constantly absorbing and uploading information on what you're observing and how the athlete is responding to the workout. Stress plus recovery equals performance gains, right? So what kind of stress can the athlete be put under? How well do they recover? When do they need recovery weeks, days, structure? How do they recover? Is it good sleep? Are they under stress with other things, workload, family, career? So it is impossible for me to know. Could this person be capable of running a 250 marathon with some structured training in a couple of months on doing her first 10K at 830s? Possible. Absolutely. It's been done before and it's not even that, let's say, uncommon. Majority of people? No, I, I wouldn't think so. 
but can it happen? Is it an unreasonable thing or path to see? No, I can see the path already. I can see the path that for this training, it's just sort of a training day, a buildup that actually soon 745s would have been fine for 10K with the proper stimulus, adaptation, absorption, proper training, strength, some bounding and some variety of different drills and volume buildup. 15 miles a week is not a lot for a 10K when the distance is six miles, 6.2 miles. So many questions, right? As you can hear how I'm describing it. Throw into it now, you know, so sub sevens means holding seven minute, sub sevens. Sub three hour marathon means holding sub seven minute miles. Possible? Yes, but we would want to constantly test, field test to see if our training's being absorbed. We have a short window. But again, here the other thing to keep in mind is if this person runs a 310 or a 315 in her first marathon in Mumbai. It's still a huge success. It's still huge gains. It's still huge strides forward on the path towards future desired outcome. It's what I talked about in the past, uh, maybe last episode, about achieving your goal is not the question. It should not be the question. The same thing I had with the English Channel Swimmer this morning, same thing I had with a climber last week. Achieving the goal, achieving the outcome is not the question. It's the how and when that you should take off the table. Because if you, this runner in Mumbai, you the swimmer, you the mountain climber, the mountaineer, if you're doing your best, if you're doing what you're capable of, of you in the current now, being the best current athlete version of yourself, you can't be more than that. Can you be less? Easy. But you can't give more than who you are. And so then your outcome will be achieved. But the question is, how will the achievement be achieved this January in Mumbai? Or will it be next January or at another marathon and but making a huge and trying making a huge stride forward towards that goal and putting it and saying this is my goal that's fantastic i love that that is putting a line in the sand and saying this is what i will do and then allowing the how your life your training your absorption your ability to do it your strength you're staying injury free how you're building your endurance all those hows will happen. They will happen how they're meant to happen. And it will happen when it's meant to happen. And again, in my personal belief, the best possible outcome for an athletic achievement is if the athlete says to me, the coach, not me, Chris, but me, the coach, you know what, the way this unfolded, it was magical. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. That is peak performance at its highest level. And oftentimes, peak performance at its highest level happens at a different time than we expected it. So maybe that means at the next marathon, but having gone through the Mumbai journey and been close and understanding the training better and why you were doing certain things the way you were doing and how to tighten up certain things in your training and so forth, catapulted you forward to a 248 marathon. Who knows, right? 
just the process of doing our best every day. And that's the key. So the reason I brought up this email is one, to highlight how difficult it is to predict in any way what kind of athlete this is. Two, it's never to take anybody's dreams, desired outcomes, goals away from them. Can they? Yes. But let's give it a good whirl and try and we'll understand so much more and better. And then lastly, it's don't look for the if, as in don't think about it of if you're going to do it. Take the how and when off the table and know that, well, if you're giving it your best, if you're putting forth the best athletic version of yourself, you will not only grow so dramatically in your training and journey towards that goal, towards that desired outcome, but you will hopefully have a story and a sensation and a joy in your journey that you will afterwards say, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. This path, my path is the way I wanted it to go. And it was meant to be. And it makes the journey easier because you can trust in the path. You can trust in, I'm doing my best given who I am right now, my life, what it needs, what, all I can give. And I wouldn't want it any other way because this is my path. It happened the way it had to happen for me, how it happened and when it happened. So um, I hope that answers the question and I will let that person know quickly because if she's going to start training for that Mumbai marathon and we, her and I, or whoever she decides to work with, um, will need to get going quickly. Alrighty, let's dive into one of the final emails of this week. Um, I've got such a good <laughs> database of some really good questions and good emails here that, you know, I'm just trying to keep up and continue on this format. Um, I know I want to get into the 70.3 training, but I feel like as we're in the heart of the season here and doing all the training and racing to answer these questions um, that I feel also help other athletes out, not just the athletes that I'm answering the questions for, it just gives us an overall better sense in this community of listeners that um, we're helping each other and the knowledge that we're going back and forth with that you're asking and I'm doing my best in trying to answer hopefully helps everybody in a little way, in some way, on the podcast here. I don't like calling it the pod. I know Rich likes calling it the pod, but his pod is a little bit bigger than my pod. So, all right, um, this one. Uh, good morning, Chris. Big fan of both you and Rich. Turned 50 about a year ago, which definitely plays with one's mind. Uh-oh, I got that coming up in a couple of months. Long story short, I quit drinking alcohol about a year ago so I can pursue a healthier lifestyle, which feels nothing short of amazing. That's awesome to read and beautiful to read. And you have a whole life ahead of you of being healthy and living a healthier lifestyle. It's pretty um, profound to keep in mind that, you know, when we turn 50, we still have 30, 40, maybe even 50 years given the, the gains in health and fitness and the medical outcomes ahead of us. We're at halfway. But if you think of it too, that we don't really remember the first 10 years of our life, or nor will we sort of um, agents of our own life, but we are at 50. And let's try to keep this and health and 
fitness and vitality and being agents of our own days and weeks and months going as long as we can. And in order to not be limited to an unhealthy living as of 75 or 80, doing the best we can now in our 40s and 50s and 30s to invest in that length, longevity down the road of future adventures to still do them in your 60s and 70s? How amazing an extension of life, of truly living would that be? But that's what I'm looking for. So I hope you guys are looking for the same thing. Anyway, sidetrack there. Um, Thanks to one of your podcasts with Rich, I started trail running. I really enjoy it because I run slow. Don't we all? (laughs) That's trail running. And you gave me some confidence that slow running is okay. Absolutely. Anyway, being in New England, the weather is turning and I've been hitting the trails again. This um, was sent to me in May. The last two runs, my outer knee has been bothering me. Um, It looks like I've developed IT band syndrome. It's painful when I run. Um, I guess the obvious answer is to rest it. I'm going to do, am I going to do any damage by pushing it slightly? Meaning I'd love to hit the trails and maybe do some faster paced walking, lighter jogs. There's some discomfort, but manageable. I know it's not a lot of information, but should I stay off it or am I going to do more damage by continuing to use it? Simple um, answers here. Well, of course, resting it will speed up the recovery. But you also want to continue and um, not continue, excuse me, uh, figure out what caused it in the first place. And this is something that many overlook. Um, Well, why did it come about? What brought it about? And most likely because the weather turned, doing some longer stuff or stuff that's newer to the muscle groups, downhills or rolling hills from a trail running perspective, quickly tightened up the IT band. And remember, IT bands are something of a support muscle as well. When they get tired, we want other muscles, hamstrings, glutes, um, Achilles, shin, all kinds of different support muscles along the chain to help that IT band out. But because they're not fully developed or not strong enough, it's all set on the IT band to take the absorption, right? You know where it hurts. Just think that's been taking on the load, the brunt of the landing, especially downhill into versus the hip bone and taking it full into the hip socket. That IT band lightens the load. It's your cushion. And we don't want it to be the only cushion. And so it gets tight from doing that extra work and the demands of a longer run and load and maybe doing too much too quickly, maybe building up too quickly. It tightens and it tightens. And then those screws get tightened at the knee where it hurts at the insertion point or at the connection point. That's annoying and it is painful and it can get very painful if you're not careful and stop rest or just walk where you're not feeling it. But I would definitely pull back from running and think about other ways to continue to build your trail running fitness. You can hike pretty dramatically at a high or at least zone two heart rate pretty successfully almost in any terrain. You could put some weight 
and a backpack and hike and continue to build the engine. You can do a variety of different cross training things like cycling or mountain biking again, so that the impact on the IT bands and landing and 40 times your body weight with running isn't asking it to do work and it will tighten up quicker and pull even more and last longer. And yes, it can get worse. There is damage that is being done. And I would, again, not knowing you, I would actually always, always defer to rest, right? Um, now, many of you have heard me say that, you know, muscularly, you can't do that much damage by pushing through it. But again, everybody is a little different and IT band, Syndrome is something that can then really pull on the knee and do some other damage and pain. And again, that insertion point makes things worrisome as well. So think of different creative ways to continue to build your fitness and stay off of it and um, stick to walking or where you don't feel it while doing the exercise. That's what I would recommend. All right, last but not least, as many I found you and your work through listening to Rich Roll's book and then the podcast. I'm new to endurance. As a brief backstory, I lost six stone in weight in six months last year and started running in October 2018. I got the bug. I'm around 80K a week and I'm concentrating on nutrition. I'm now vegan. Strength and simple things like body balance. I'm not a strong runner. I'm 6'3" tall and a bit of a bean pole right now. Probably perfect for running. I'm fine with that, but the hips and glutes need work for sure. Yes, they do. Anyway, I feel like some guidance is needed and I want to train rather than exercise. I haven't had access to a heart rate test. I wear a whoop strap and that reads HRV, etc. And that says I'm 39 years old. Um, Max heart rate is 199, which puts my zone 2 around 114 to 133. Obviously, that's not scientific, so I know it's a little guesswork. I'm really interested in training this way. It all makes sense to me, especially as a runner who needs to build strength as well as a base. A consultation would be great. I'm hoping to get one real soon with you. But in the meantime, if you have basic advice on, for example, if I just started Z2 for my runs from now on, and if that'd be wise for me, that'd be fantastic. All the best and hopefully chat soon. All right. Well, first of all, yes, a consultation would be quite helpful for you because that would allow you to um, really get an individual sense of what you need to do and achieving future outcomes with regards to maybe events and putting some of those runs or those weeks of 80K a week to the test. And maybe you enjoy um, competing and not necessarily against other people, but in an environment where things are measured and having a fun time and support and so forth. So I don't see any competitions in here. So I'm wondering about that. Secondly, on a con um, consultation, we could go over your five by one mile run test that, <coughs> excuse me, um, <coughs> ooh, did not feel good to cough on broken ribs, um, that you could then um, see on the website and have practiced by that, the five by one mile run test, which is the first thing I would do. I would compare that to the heart rate 
and the Z2 that you've gotten via your whoop strap, which I don't even know what a whoop strap is. Um, so, and again, with data in general, always keep in mind, it's, it's helping you triangulate what is the best personal data for you. What is the most accurate um, data that works for you? So using the age model, using my five by one mile test, using other ways to test heart rate data, as well as pace, as well as how you're feeling, as well as RPE, feeling and RPE, obviously very similar. Um, you want to continue going from big, broad circles to those circles becoming smaller and smaller and smaller to really eventually, hence pinpoint um, what is exactly the stimulus you need and the zones that exactly work for you. And after a while, what you'll find is you intrinsically already feel what your zones are and where you need to be, what easy is and feels like versus having a heart rate number tell you that, what tempo is versus a heart rate telling you that as well as threshold. But um, yeah, but is, is it okay to just be like, oh man, I am having a hard time talking today. Maybe it's my lack of air in the lungs. Um, for example, if I just started Z2 for my runs from now on, and if that'd be wise for me, that'd be fantastic. Well, I've talked about this on this podcast a few times. I would say the first few years of me doing Ironman triathlon, I would say for the first five or six Ironmans that I did, maybe even one or two more, all I did was zone two training, if not less, lower, um, because I didn't have as much knowledge around it yet, and I probably went too easy and never pushed hard enough. But yeah, I did all my training, zone two in aerobic space, um, because again, I was a big believer in creating volume and economy of motion, efficiency versus any type of speed. I wanted to go faster with it feeling easy versus going faster with it feeling like work. So I always trained low heart rate, easy on the RPE scale, and just continued to build volume and volume and volume. And the beauty with that, as we all know, as many of you have been listening to all 109 or 10 episodes, it has been that zone two and keeping things easy in the aerobic space, besides all the see, physiological markers and benefits, fat utilization, you know, mitochondria density, capillary expansion, all those things. Um, better delivery of oxygen to the working muscles um, <clears throat> is that you recover quickly, you eat a good meal, you hydrate, and you wake up the next day. Sure, you might be a little groggy, but you're not sore. You're not achy. And you can do it again and again and again and again and build up this huge platform of fitness. And then let's say you sprinkle in a month or every four months two weeks of speed and pull back way back on the volume and um, do a lot of intensity, you will fly and you will continue to improve. I've also talked about in this podcast about how our body's a sponge, our fitness is a sponge. So in your case, Dean, another Dean, um, 
You keep doing zone two until your body doesn't absorb it anymore, until the, the gains aren't happening as dramatically anymore. And that's where you could do the follow-up test, where you continue to see at a set heart rate, your body, your legs, and your pace keeps getting faster and faster, despite not changing the heart rate. And despite not doing any speed training, that's clearly showing that your body's continuing to accept and absorb the zone two training that you're doing. So I used racing early on in those years as my intensity. There were times I would go, you know, five, six weeks in a row where I would race every weekend. So I'd race an Olympic and then I'd race a 70.3 and then I'd race a sprint or then I'd race with all my buddies who I trained with um, purposely on that weekend or do a group ride with a bunch of cyclists, roadies, so that it was also fast and intense. And that was my only intensity training. I didn't train intensity the rest of the week or in between the races. I would just go easy, just putt, putt along. Um, for me, that was back then, heart rates of below 120 on the bike, like 113, 114, 108, um, many hours at that. Um, and just keep puttering along. So um, I knew I had the endurance. I knew I had the um, technique. And so I just wanted to go longer and longer and get a better understanding what happens after four or five hours many days in a row. What happens after five, six hours on the bike many days in a row. What happens, I didn't have to worry about swimming, um, when running three, four, five hours many days in a row. I didn't do it like that back then because I was getting ready for triathlon, so I didn't run that long. But I did it for ultra running in my early years. I just went out for longer and longer runs. And then the longer runs became faster because I became more efficient and economical in it. My brain started working better around like, all right, it's four hours. I can figure out how to run this smoother, using less energy, spreading my energy out better, how I'm going to take on the hills and the downhills so that the energy I'm applying to the changes and undulations in the course would net me an overall faster time despite the same average heart rate for that four hour run. So yes, long way to answer that zone two is the way to go in my opinion. I love it. And I do know that there's limitations to it with regards to when we're no longer absorbing it, but then there's specific training stimuli you can do to quickly improve that or change that and still have the benefits you're looking for with regards to um, results, peak performance, or also being able to go back to zone two at a new level and continuing to absorb that as a sponge. So that ought to help. And I hope to hear from you, Dean. Okay, that will do it this week on the questions and the podcast. Um, I had a few opportunities in those emails to sort of go off the rails a little bit and talk about a variety of different topics and mindset and approach. And um, hopefully all that helped. But yeah, I want to get this podcast out there pretty quickly. I owe you all plenty of podcasts and updates and so forth. And I really want to dive into some of the uh, training plans and 70.3 concepts. Um, I realize it's August and many of you are on the tail end, back end of your season. But I think it'll be valuable to do that as we go into 
the preseason for 2020, number one. And number two, I also think it's important that we talk a little bit about strength and preseason work as we're getting ready for 70.3s and so forth. So having that plan out there and for you then to adapt, adjust um, for your life and your training accordingly will make you more familiar with it come the season in 2020. So just some thoughts around that or maybe excuses why I haven't gotten it done yet. But yeah, I am going to continue to um, sit on the sidelines here a little bit uh, with my ribs and uh, try to catch up on content and some work for all of you, my athletes and you, my listeners, because you know what? I am super, super thankful that you guys all take this time out of your day, out of your week to listen to me talk about um, and only me talk about these topics. I will say I have another athlete um, uh, interview, consultation, um, recording that I'm doing tomorrow that I'm looking forward to. And hopefully I'll feel really good about that content to share that really quickly too, because it sounds like a really interesting discussion that I'm going to have. So have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Keep sending in questions. Keep sending in thoughts where you're like, you know what? Um, I think everybody could benefit from this. I've gotten a few emails this week of people who are just about to do their first 50K or first 50 miler or first 10K and just saying, you know, this is how I prepared. This is what I did. I listened to your 50K plan. I listened to your inputs on this. I listened to your inputs on that. That is amazing to hear that. But I don't need it for my kudos or to sort of um, validate this. It's more that I want to continue to hear from you so that I can continue to push the information out and you guys are all successful in what you're doing. All righty. Have a great week.